Thank you, Arlene and Sharon and Ralph. We've been studying the power of the cross all because I stumbled onto one verse in the last series that we did on the Gospel of John, 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul talking about how we preach Christ crucified, a foolishness to the world. The message or the power of the cross is actually foolishness to the world. But it's the next part that got me. It's a stumbling block to believers though. And Paul said that it was a stumbling block to Jews. Uh, what he's talking about back then were believers versus the world, believers versus the Gentiles. And that's what got me. What is this stumbling block? Why is the power of the cross a stumbling block? How can the fact that God would love us enough to sacrifice his only son be a stumbling block? The emptying power of love means that it can't be bought, it can't be earned, and by the way, it can't be faked, and it can't be forced. It is power from under, and I think herein lies the problem with every fallen human being is that power under just doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to be the winning team or the winning side. That's why it's foolishness to the world. Exhibiting power under self-sacrificing love just looks like it's losing on this planet. It looks like it's losing on this stage. So it brought me to a point where I wanted to look at the prophetic history of our church. I like the, I like the term prophetic history. The reason that I like it is that we have been taught or taught at the time that prophecy is all about the future when actually we don't even know the fulfillment of prophecy until it's already fulfilled. And so we should become prophetic historians. In other words, how did the prophets predict what that which is already filled, fulfilled behind us? And remember, if we can grasp onto that, if we can hold on to that, then we have no reason to fear the future or the present. So it brings us to the prophetic history of the church. This church that begins her 2,000 year journey either stumbling or refusing to stumble over the power of the cross. See, I don't think it's bad to stumble over the power of the cross. I don't think it's bad to be, for it to be a stumbling block, for it to get in my way. And the church began that journey doing the very thing that they can't do when you wanna live by the power of the cross, and that is they forgot about this love that God had for them. They forgot the idea that God loved them. And they began to base it on their performance. They began to base it on what they were doing with heresies and weeding out uh, false doctrine and weeding out false prophets. And they forgot their first love. So all for the 2,000 year journey now is this stumbling or refusing to stumble. And up until last time it brought us uh, starting in, brought us all the way up, if you will, in our history, in the church's history, starting in about the fourth century CE in Constantine, beginning the unthinkable, the unthinkable, and that is to make the cross an earthly weapon of war. To tap into this irresistible power that comes from this mixture of political and religious power together, actually to come up with a holy empire, if you will brought us to the church of Thyatira that we looked at last time. And, and the church of Thyatira is all about this prophetic history, the medieval church, 
that comes all the way up. The thing about Thyatira, though, is that it goes all the way until 1563. Something happens before that. See, and, and I think I pointed out last time that, that uh, talking about Thyatira and talking about the prophetic history in the medieval church, we were all feeling pretty good about that because we're talking about that other church, you know, that, that medieval church, that one that isn't Protestant, and we were kind of patting ourselves on the back, but you know, Thyatira again goes all the way to 1563 and a little something happened around 1517, you know? And maybe we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back too loud and that's what we're gonna look at today. I was privileged to lead a Reformation tour in 2012 and we were at Wittenberg Wittenberg being the little college town that Martin Luther actually was studying in. And the chapel at Wittenberg actually contains the door on which he nailed the 95 Theses. But when we were there in 2012, the church, the chapel, the, the monastery, all of it had scaffolding all the way to the ceiling, all the way to the roof. They were cleaning it up. They were ref, uh, refurbishing everything. And there were banners all over the place getting ready for five years later October 31st, 2017, that would be the 500th year anniversary of what we count as the beginning of the Reformation, 1517. You know, back in 1999, when we were getting ready for the millennium we are now living in, this 21st century, if you will, it, I read in every article, in every publication that was looking back at the 20th century, and there were so many articles written about what are the greatest events of the 20th century? What, you know, what, what was it that, that made the 20th century? And the Reformation was in the top three of every one of those articles. Everyone believed that the Reformation was in the top three at least. A lot of them had number one. Top three at least of the things that changed the world in the 20th century. From last time, Thyatira, until now, this prophetic description of this millennial earthquake of the Reformation, how is it that the prophet described that in the church of Thyatira? He sums it up in one line. One line at the church of Thyatira. He says, I know that your last works are what? are greater than the first. In other words, to, to sum up this top three event that shaped everything, this earthquake that supposedly changed the world, the prophet isn't real impressed with it. The prophet says, Jesus says to the church, uh, you're doing a little better than you were before. That's what he says in Thyatira. So towards the end of Thyatira, the prophetic history is, is that it ends in 1563. Today's church, Sardis, the next era, if you will, goes from 1563 all the way to 1798, another great earthquake, if you will, but 1798. But look what was supposed to happen in the middle. In 1517, the Reformation occurs. In other words, if you wanna use that date, and you have to remember, too, that when you get up to talk about these things in church, I'm, I'm, I'm way oversimplifying. 
The Reformation didn't actually begin that day with Luther. It began with a couple of hundred years of thought and seeds and everything else. Rarely does anything begin on one particular date and move forward. But here we are with this date. We know this date. So what does this earthquake, what did it do for the next 280 years? What did it do for the church? What did this earthquake do for what Jesus says the church has accomplished up until then? Let's take a look. Sardis, to the angel in church in Sardis, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have a name of being alive, but really, you are what? Wow. 300 years of reformation, and that's all she gets? You have a reputation, Jesus says, of being alive, but really, you're what? You are dead. She's dead. A name, a reputation, a history of being alive, But actually, Jesus says, the church is dead. They are spiritually lifeless. They're reminded that Jesus is the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. Remember, the church usually is uh, um, comforted, if you will, by the way that Jesus appears. Usually, the way that Jesus appears to the church is the solution for what she needs. Notice the seven what? Seven spirits, not just one, but the seven spirits. Again, all seven. The spirit, if you will. The Holy Spirit. He says he holds the spirit. What does the church need? Spiritually, she's dead. She's got a reputation of being alive. Especially after this. The mixture of empire and everything else and the Reformation's been around for 300 years. As a matter of fact, we looked at Thyatira a couple weeks ago and we were beginning to pat ourselves on the back as Protestants, weren't we? But look at our church, Protestants, for 300 years. Jesus says all it takes from there to there is now to be spiritually what? Spiritually dead. He's got seven stars. Seven stars, seven messages, if you will. Again, when you see the number seven, that is God's message. It's a complete number. It's a whole number. There's no spirit beyond the seven spirits. There's no light beyond the seven stars. The spirit should be the life force of the church. The star being the light that the church shows unto the world. Unfortunately, Sardis is missing both. So Jesus analyzes and diagnoses the church for us. Church has a good reputation, but it's not one she deserves. It's highly thought of, as I said, even by secular authors writing, writing uh, perspectives on uh, a thousand-year period saying that, that, that the Reformation had to be something that changed the world. And it maybe, maybe it did. But as far as a church is concerned, is Jesus telling us that it changed the world for the better? Not if the church has no light to give the world and has no Holy Spirit in her. She is what? She's dead. Again, a very oversimplification, but if you look at the 95 Theses, basically it was a treatise against the church selling indulgences. 
Everybody uh, kind of knows what an indulgence is, don't, don't we? Again, the church taught back at that time that, that, that uh, when you died, you went to a holding area, you went to purgatory so that God could figure out what to do with you, to look at your, at your record and everything else, or, or straight to hell, or, but if purgatory was okay, but you could buy your way out of purgatory, the church said. You may not have been able to do all the good deeds that you could. You may not have been able to have one more good deed than you had bad deeds before you died. If that's true, that's okay. The church said, you can assure yourself no time in purgatory by what? By buying it. Every church had a coffer in it and the coffer had a metal lid on it. And of course it would ring. Every time the coffer rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. At the time that Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the, to the Wittenberg door, the last big indulgence, if you will, Pope Leo X was getting the money together, having people donate to be able to build St. Peter's Basilica, which is ironic because Leo was the one that bankrupted the church, literally bankrupted the church. You want to talk about somebody who was frivolous, somebody who splurged in the, in, 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 in the medieval times, in the dark times. This was one pope that lived high. He was the Medici pope. A lot say that it was the papacy that was bought by the Medici family. Yeah, you can tell I like talking about this, but I'm not going to go too far down that road. But men like Luther, who had been monks, and, and certain priests and reformers of thought, they began 100 years ago saying, this, this just can't be right. You can't buy and sell God this way. They sold offices, they gave indulgences. They, um, by the way, uh, one way to absolutely assure that you would never spend a minute in purgatory and to go along with last week is all you had to do was go on a crusade. If you went on a crusade, which means if you killed enough people in order to be able to, uh, uh, you know, to, to um, uh, wrest away the Holy Land you know, from, from, from the Muslims, then, then uh, you were automatically out. All you had to do was go on a crusade. And it doesn't matter what your life was after that. Uh, it doesn't matter what your life was before that. The Pope would guarantee that you spent no time in purgatory if you went on a crusade. So these reformers, they look at the gospel. It's said that Luther, when he first, when he learned to speak Greek, he then translated the gospel of Romans, he translated the letter to the Romans into, uh, from, from Greek into his language, and it says that that is the beginning, actually, of his Reformation thought, is that Jesus forgives sin. Jesus has forgiven, will forgive. It takes care of guilt. So if a church member no longer has any guilt, would you be able to be preyed upon by a pope or a priest telling you that you should fear hell and purgatory? You see how the gospel freed them, the reformers. It freed their thought. It takes care of guilt, should have no fear. But does the Reformation follow through? Next thing he tells Sardis is this. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that what? That remain, you got stuff there. 
The gospel has always been a seed that's been there. You've got stuff there. But, but you need to what? You need to strengthen it. Strengthen the things that remain that were about to die. For I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of God. They don't follow through. It's not completed, it's almost. It's a church of half-hearted obedience. They get started on a lot of things. A lot of things began happening. A lot of things began to move forward. Now that, that prophetic diagnosis is making sense, isn't it? A lot of things have begun to move forward. He said, your deeds are a little better than they were before. Right? You're a little better than the medieval church, that other church. But you don't what? You're not following through. You're not taking it to its logical place. You're almost free, he says. Almost there. So remember what you've received and heard. And what? Keep it. Keep it, don't give it away. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a what? I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Wake up. 979 years of a holy empire using force, fear, and coercion as the ultimate weapon, and even the reformers are asleep to it. You get what I'm saying? It's become such part of the church's DNA that even somebody who's looking to reform it, they don't understand that that's a problem. Even the reformers are still looking for assurance elsewhere. Luther and, and his, his fellow scholar, Philippe Melanchthon, they had to establish a legal right to exist outside of the Roman Catholic Church. In 1560, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles I called together all the Protestant thinkers and asked for a reason. Give me a reason why you want to exist outside the church. He was looking actually to be able to unify the country because the friction and people were uh, unify the countries themselves. He was looking for a way to bring them together. So he calls them to a place called Augsburg, and Melanchthon and Luther bring what is known as the Augsburg Confession. And it gives all of the, of, of the Lutheran view, of, uh, uh, points of belief, if you will. But also, it was an application to be able to legally exist outside of Charles the, Charles the First reign. So eventually, what it led to is that each Protestant faith each, uh, if you were living in a particular country, you got to choose your faith, but only if you could get the government also to sponsor you, if you will, to become that. So you could be either Roman Catholic or you could be the various, uh, any of the various branches of Protestantism. You could be a follower of Calvin if you were in northern Switzerland. You could be a follower of Zwingli if you were in southern Switzerland. But you had to have the government to sign off on to be able uh, to be able to do that. A legal right to exist. See, to me, I think that this is part of what it means to be asleep. It's okay if I dabble in the power, if you will, of the beast. 
as long as my theology is correct. As long as I'm not Roman Catholic, then everything should be okay. But really, what are they just doing? They're changing beds, aren't they? They're looking for their own political power. Why? Because they've got to fight this beast. You with me? If you were different than any of those, you were not tolerated. Absolutely not tolerated at all. Ask the Anabaptists. I'm gonna get to the Anabaptists, either later or next, uh, not next week, but the following week, okay? So he says, remember, he says, remember what you've received. Remember, obey and what? Obey and repent. Wait. What's interesting about that verse too, what you may not have picked up on is it's not really that the church is dead. She's just comatose, isn't she? See, because, because well, she isn't really. Okay, she isn't really. She is dead, all right? But, but, the one who can re- revive her, the one that can resurrect her is the one that's standing outside offering it to her. I've got the, I've got, I've got the oxygen right here. I've got, the, I've got it right here. Not quite so dead, but more like on life support. She can still wake up. Can still wake up. For somebody who's been comatose, what is the best thing to do for somebody that's been comatose except to wake them up? Isn't that the greatest news? I've got a niece-in-law, comatose for three months, and she woke up. Amen? Amen? But you gotta do so, speaking of the church, you've gotta do so before what? Gotta do so before he comes. I want you to hold on to this thought, and and I don't know if we'll flesh it out anymore, but it just occurred to me, just hold on to this thought, that Jesus coming is going to be a comfort to Philadelphia and Smyrna, okay? But to Sardis and Thyatira, it's a threat. Doesn't it sound like a threat? to the two churches that look for their power elsewhere, or even worse, they don't look for their power outside the cross, they weaponize the cross. For those two churches, Jesus' coming is not welcome, Jesus' coming is a threat. See, the thief reference is clear, isn't it? I'm gonna come like a what? Come like a thief. And the problem with that The problem with that is that if I don't have that assurance completely in Jesus, then now I turn the second coming into a message of fear. And now I'm back to fear and guilt, right? Should the church fear the second coming? Have we? Have we taught that it's something to be feared at any time in our Protestant history? Just think about that. But for for Sardis, he says, you still have what? You still have a few. You still have a few who have not soiled their clothes. They'll walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. See, for the guilt and the fear that the church is preying on, so that you don't go to hell or, or spend too much time in purgatory, that guilt and that fear, if it's taken away, then you don't, have to, you don't have to fear the second coming either. Why? Because of this, these garments right here, the robes. 
the robes. They remain in Sardis. If you conquer, you'll be clothed like what? Like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I'll confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The robes. Jesus counsels first to wake up. Like I said, the best thing for anybody who is in a coma, the best thing to happen is to wake up. A dead church needs breath. He doesn't just have one breath. He's got seven breaths for them. Seven. Fully created, recreated. He's willing to resurrect the church and recreate her completely. Two, he says, strengthen what remains. This is different from Thyatira. There he said he would place no further burden upon the people who had not laid down with Jezebel, right? He put no further burden. This one, though, this one he has to tell them to hold on to what they've got. Sardis is not adequate before God. They are worse off than Thyatira. Again, that's why I don't pat myself on the back real loudly with my Protestant right fist. In, in, in a way, I guess what I'm getting at is that the Reformation didn't improve the church. They made her worse. They killed her. But then he says to remember what you've received and what you've heard. Just like Ephesus, he says, go back to the last place to find it. And what are you looking for? Looking for that my father himself loves you to remember your first love, to remember that you are loved as you are. Go back to Jesus as proof that God loves you and not the cross as a weapon of fear and force and coercion. You with me? I don't think you heard that. Go back to Jesus and the cross as proof that God loves you not a weapon of fear or force or coercion. Repent. The case in the tense in Greek there is start. Just begin. Start. Start doing what you're not doing. You can turn around. You can repent from indifference. You can, love conquers all apathy. And it always begins with what? If we confess our sins. He who is faithful and true will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It all begins with confession. It begins with realizing who we were. It begins realizing where we came from. And it begins confessing that. Is there an incentive? Yes. His sudden, unannounced coming. Every time I teach the second coming, I always teach. I say, we know everything about the second coming. We know absolutely everything about the second coming, except one tiny little thing. When? And by the way, it's the one question everybody wants to know. Are we like babies sometimes? The one thing that he's decided not to tell us, that's the one thing we've got to know. So much so that we'll predict when it's going to happen.
But we are to remember that he's coming back, yes. But a reason to fear? No. Not at all. Not if we remember and go back and hold on. Amen? Some say that Sardis has ignored this teaching. They've forgotten to keep their minds fixed on his return. They have stopped trying to get ready for his second coming. How many of those words just resonated with somebody right there? My question is this. What if they haven't forgotten at all? What if they are getting ready? But, but, they're scared. What if they're doing everything that they're supposed to do? except for one thing. They're what? They're scared. See, it's a different thing to be scared and get ready for the second coming or to be assured and get ready for the second coming. What if, what if they're doing everything they're supposed to do except that they're scared? See, for a thousand years they've had a beast teach them that there is a reason to fear not obeying God purgatory, hell, so forth and so on. And now the Reformation comes along and they're not doing anything about that on that point. See, remember what it was. The reward is that we will walk with him in white. Prophetically, what does it mean to walk with him in white? Are the people that are walking in in, in white, are they uh, faithful, are they assured, or are they afraid? You shouldn't be if we're walking in white. See, he says to not be soiled, to be actually white, the, 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 the record, if you will, white. When we accept Jesus, we receive his full acceptance. When we receive his complete legal acceptance in the actions he has taken for us. This is why, I don't know, back in November that I decided to go through Romans just a little bit so that we would understand that the power of the cross can provide uh, everything that, that the sword cannot provide. Romans 3, beginning, remember in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed, attested to by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and what? And fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified. What did I tell you to to, to call to mind when you came across that word? Made right are now made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You believe that, you're wearing not your robe anymore. You're wearing his Those who haven't soiled are the ones who remain faithful. God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies or makes right the one who has faith in Jesus. So what becomes a boasting? It's excluded. By what law? By that of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is made right by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Do you believe what Paul just told you? 
then you're wearing that robe. You've done everything you need to do to get ready for the second coming. Those who are acceptable to God in in their present condition, those who remain having faith today have that garment now. From here on out, at least in Revelation, and I said, remember, not chronologically, but from here on out, this is exactly how the saints are described. They're described by what they're wearing. After this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb robed in what? Robed in white with palm branches in their hands. If we walk with him today, we'll walk with him then. He won't blot our name out of the book of life. By the way, the only one that has the right to blot your name out of the book of life, he's decided he's not gonna do it if you believe in him. Even those in Sardis and Thyatira and Laodicea, if they do this, if they do this, they've overcome. At the least, he'll acknowledge them before the Father. The faithful will always have a personal advocate before God the Father. John told us that. My little children, I write these things to you so that you do not sin. But when you do, you have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone once said that I don't know if I'm scared of the judgment or not. All I know is that when I get to the judgment, I'm gonna need a pretty darn good lawyer. Well, what if the lawyer was your judge too? What if the lawyer was your judge and your jury and your lawyer? What if the whole thing was rigged because of faith in his love for you? Listen to the Spirit, he says. This message can only penetrate our hearts because of who? Because of the Spirit. Resurrection can occur even in spiritually dead lives. So hang with me just a little bit. The reformers got back to Jesus through his word. But if they don't let go of looking to uh, other forms of power, political forms of power, the same type of power that the beast puts together in the first place. If they, if, they, if they don't let go of that, everything changes, and it did. The dynamic changed because they wouldn't let go of that weapon. The idea of a holy empire was still the only thing that they thought that could defeat the unholy empire. The medieval church taught that faith was associated with nation, empire. And here I've been, tra- I've been trying to say is the church does away with love back in the first century with Ephesus and they keep looking for substitutes. She keeps looking for substitutes. And around 300, she finds this substitute, the substitute that looks so good, that feels so good, that makes us feel so safe, that creates a new God in our image. And for 1260 years, she holds court. 
reformers couldn't let that go. One nation, one faith. They believe that ecclesiastical uniformity is essential to political health and peace. And political health and peace is essential to spiritual and ecclesiastical authority. As I said before, Protestantism doesn't destroy this. Protestantism actually gives this fuel. Concern for correct doctrine begins to prevail over relationship with God and relationship with, the, with each other. They begin fighting with each other, not just fighting Catholics, but fighting each other too. New traditions, new creeds. And I'm, when I talk fight, I'm talking physical fights. I'm talking wars being committed between Protestant sects and walks. Intolerance creeps back in. Look at this time in society. The sword and the cross from 1500 to 1700. In 1540, the Society of Jesus is approved by Paul III. The Counter-Reformation now begins. You know, if, 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 if you come back at the beast with fire, what is the beast going to do? It's gonna come right back. The Jesuits now start the Counter-Reformation. In 1542, they bring back the Inquisition. In 1545, martyrdoms begin, even in England. Bloody Mary martyrs Cramner and Latimer, the famous British reformers. In 1503, Calvin has Michael Servetus executed. In 1554, the Jesuits are expelled from England. 1572, the St. Bartholomew Massacre. 50,000 Huguenots die in one night. By 1600, it's not over, it's getting worse. In 1618, it begins the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War halved the population of Europe. Are you getting me on that? The Great Plague in the 13th century only cut it by a third. The Thirty Years' War, a religious war between Protestant and Catholic and other Protestant uh, reformers, halved the population of Europe. One historian says, imagine Rwanda every year for 30 years. In 1649, the separatists, the Puritans, the Puritans execute Charles I as a heretic. I want you to notice in this list here, it isn't just Catholic against reformers. This is reformers too. Calvin had scholars such as Servetus executed. Luther raged against Catholics uh, towards the end. And especially Jews, he vowed to exterminate those who would not follow him. Luther became a horrible anti-Semite. Wrote once, if I had the choice between to become a sow or a Jew, I would pick the pig. The Anabaptists I told you I would get to, they were martyred by the Protestants and the Catholics. Both Protestant and Catholic churches establish and reestablish themselves as powerful institutions, all with political power, all with a government backing them up. 
I like to say that, that, that when the dragon begins his, his persecution by pouring out the water, he comes this close to actually doing the job. There's no room left in Europe anymore. So as reformers, we forget the sources of truth that we fell and we fall into the same mistakes that we had protested against that had happened to the church in the Middle Ages. It's happened to every church up until now. And by the way, as the reformers knew, as we knew if we want to be reformers today, the answer is Jesus. What about our part in the Reformation? How many here are first, second, third generation Adventists, born and raised in the church? It's just for us, just for us, okay? So we wouldn't teach that there was an everlasting and burning hell to be afraid of, but what did we do with the investigative judgment? We put a time limit, right? We put a time limit on whether or not God had gotten to your name in the books yet. And if he gets to your name in the books before you got your act together, did we do our own version? John Pauline says that we came up with a little vegetarian version of everlasting burning hell. That would be our beast perfection before he gets to your name. Or I'm sorry, it's gonna be a long cold winter for you. It's quarter to midnight. All out of fear. We're afraid that a sinner will slip in. We're afraid of teaching once, uh, of teaching grace because we'll be teaching once saved, always saved. We're afraid that if we teach, then we'll be held to greater responsibility. We're afraid, we're afraid, we're afraid. And then we get back to the robes. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The robes. It's a message for Sardis on life support. It's a message for us in Laodicea. Now some of you might be thinking, wow, Greg, it's awfully dark for Christmas, isn't it? This isn't a Christmas story, is it? I'd say that if it wasn't for our scripture reading. The yoke of their burden, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken as in the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for fire. Sounds like a war was fought, right? 
We got blood, we got boots, we got an army, we have all of that. God says, no, no, no. I'll take all the powers of the world. I'll take the mightiest armies on earth. I'll take every boot and every drop of blood that has been spilled in war, and I will throw it into the fire because the real power of the cross is a child. He didn't win it with military might and power. And by the way, that's not how he's returning with military might and power. He came as a child. That love that he gave us as a child, he will give us again and continues to give us. Upon his shoulders rests the government. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting prince of peace. So it is a Christmas story, isn't it? See, the church thought that the cross made a pretty good weapon. In fact, you could even fashion the, the cross into a sword. But I tell you what, you can't do that with a manger. A manger makes a horrible weapon. It makes a lousy weapon. And a baby makes a horrible soldier. So this war that he's talking about has to be something that's fought with more than an earthly sword. Even if that sword looks like a cross, a manger makes a horrible weapon in an earthly war. A baby makes a terrible soldier in an earthly war. But because of that baby, it's a war that you and I have already won. We've already conquered. If you conquer, you'll be clothed like them in white what? In white robes. And I will not blot out your name of the book of life. I'll confess your name before my father and his angels. In him, in that baby, not in any sort of other power, no matter how, uh, how enticing it is. If you've conquered, you're clothed in white. If you've conquered, you're clothed in, light, in white and we're not blotted out. It's because we stumbled. We tripped over it. On our way to whatever victory we were looking for, we tripped over the victory he's already given us. It's the message for Sardis. It's the message for Ephesus. It's the message for Laodicea. It is a Christmas story, isn't it? Merry Christmas. Thank you for holding on with me.